Hello and welcome to the Michael Collins House podcast. This time on our podcast, we look at our very own centenary commemorative War of Independence exhibition. Uh, my name is Jamie Murphy and I'm usually the host on these podcasts, giving a brief introduction to the main speaker. But for better or worse, you're stuck with me for the full podcast on this occasion. I'm the curator of the War of Independence exhibition and today I will be talking to you about the exhibition itself, how it was conceptualised, the main aims behind it um, and we will go through some of the artefacts in a little bit more detail in it as well. This is a podcast version of a lecture which was given um, on the opening of the exhibition back in 2019. Um, the plan for the podcast was to release it as the exhibition came to a close, as was planned in December of 2020. The good news is, though, that the exhibition will actually now continue until the spring of 2021 due to the closures of the museum throughout the year because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, we have decided to keep it open for another few months just to allow people the opportunity to come and visit before it finishes up. We are very grateful to Cork Public Museum who has loaned a number of artefacts for the exhibition to agree to this and extend the loan period which makes this all possible. Along with the podcast, uh, we have also produced a commemorative booklet of the exhibition, which is essentially an A4 full-colour reproduction of the exhibition in a book format, which we are very excited to release um, in early December. So, to start off, I will just give you a little bit of a background behind the exhibition itself. The whole process started back shortly after the opening of Michael Collins House in 2016. After the 1916 commemorations, our focus turned to the next big commemorations, and for us, that was the Irish War of Independence. This started with drawing up a large policy document um, for Cork County Council for the West Cork Municipal District. Uh, the main aim for this was to highlight the significant impact West, Co West Cork had on the National War of Independence. It was also used to, I suppose, quantify the cultural and economic benefits um, a commemorative programme would have in West Cork. Um, now, this document made a number of other recommendations and set in motion a number of events which would form part of Cork County Council's commemorative programme, uh, which included uh, a War of Independence trail, which was due actually to launch in spring, um, but unfortunately was held back due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Our own events um, were also included in this um, and uh, one of them was of course this exhibition. Now considering the subject matter of the museum itself, Michael Collins, he had a key role in the war and it's a name synonymous with West Cork. It would be decided that uh, the museum itself would be central to the commemorations for Cork County Council. So that really brought us up to the beginning of the formation of this exhibition and laid out very much our events for the year of 2020, such as our history talks, history scoops and other events. Unfortunately, COVID-19 has really impacted on these plans and many of the planned commemorative events have as such been cancelled, downsized or moved online. Um, while luckily our exhibition preceded all of this as it was launched in April of 2019. So being in the heart of West Cork and with the name of Michael Collins above the door, we knew that we had to put on a dedicated exhibition. And while the museum already had a small display looking at the War of Independence, this display is more from the perspective of Michael Collins. And we wanted to look at the broader picture and also look at it from a, a more West Cork perspective. 
There was also the difficulty in finding space. Now, space is at a premium in the museum. It is a large Georgian house, but unfortunately, a large Georgian house makes a small museum. So we had to make the difficult decision to whittle down our 1798 exhibition, which was placed in our dining room. Now, the content of this, we, we kind of downsized slightly and we have put it in with in our um, drawing room with our Gen- Jeremiah O'Donovan Rossa exhibit as well. Now, this actually makes an awful lot of sense because now we have this kind of introduction room which lays out the foundation of the, the history up until Michael Collins' time and in the overall arc of the Michael Collins story and how we present it. It makes sense because you have this exhibit, exhibit now that looks at clonic in the young Michael Collins surrounded by the figures that would have been the biggest influence of him such as Tygan Asna who was a local 1798 rebellion leader and Jeremiah Donovan Rossa another local Fenian leader so once we had the space figured out and um, we could get about to planning the exhibition itself going into the exhibition we wanted to tell the wider story of the war and we wanted to present it in an unbiased view of the events rather than this kind of hagiographical or romantic view of events that is often the case with the Irish War of Independence. Our aim was to just present the facts of the war and to leave it up to the visitor to form their own opinions. As a result of this, uh, we formulated an exhibition which gives us a relatively equal space to everybody involved in the war. So we look at the governments involved, the Crown Forces, general headquarters of the IRA, the ordinary people. Um, So these are all kind of given equal space. And in addition to this, then we have an overview of the the whole war itself, an introduction to the war, the timeline, and a more in-depth look at the war in West Cork itself. As with all our exhibits at Michael Collins House, the main aim of all this is accessibility. And that no matter what your level of knowledge is coming into the exhibition, um, you'll gain something from it. So whether you're a child or somebody who has from overseas who has never heard of the War of Independence, you're going to get a great understanding of what it is. So over the course of a year or so, we carried out um, our research, gathering documents, images, and we wrote a full annotated academic paper which um, will be available shortly as part of the commemorative booklet. Now this research was a significant undertaking with Dr Alan McCarthy, Kevin O'Regan and myself gathering and collating a huge amount of information to put together this big jigsaw. Um, from this paper then we siphoned off the main points and presented them to you in the most digestible manner. Then we furnished this, the text with images and finally we sought out artefacts to help, I suppose, illustrate the story and kind of bring the history to life. These were gathered from a number of places. Um, obviously we have a large number of um, artefacts in our own collection which we put in. Uh, we, all, we, we moved these from other displays and that into our, the exhibition space here. We also received a number of loans from private collections, so we were very lucky to receive um, stuff on loan, obviously from the Collins family um, and also from the Hales family um, and from other places as well. We specifically purchased some pieces for this exhibition and our main benefactor for the, the exhibition then itself was, of course, Cork Public Museum. Now, after liaising for some time with Dan Breen, who is the curator of the Cork Public Museum, and once we could show that we reached the national standards in terms of con- conservation and all the rest, and um, we were able to take on loan a number of wonderful items that I will go through a little bit later on in more detail. First of all, I'm going to just give you a quick run through, I suppose, the, the layout of the exhibition itself and 
our information boards and all the rest, then we'll have a look at some of the artefacts afterwards. Now, the exhibition itself is laid out in the dining room of Michael Collins' house. Um, that's where I currently am sitting, actually. Uh, this is the largest room in the house, and as I said earlier, it previously housed our introductory history room, which looked at the 1798 Rebellion, both at the local and national level, and how this feeds into the Michael Collins story. We repurposed the room into a temporary exhibition space to house different exhibitions on an annual basis, the first of these being the War of Independence. And the way this is laid out is in a somewhat chronological fashion. First off, we have the introduction and overview. The idea is to set the scene and give a foundation for the whole war that makes everything that you read afterwards make more sense. Next, then, we have the, the Crown Forces. And so from interacting with our own visitors on guided tours and just in general, we sensed that there was a, very much a, a kind of a misunderstanding of the Crown Forces that the IRA were opposed to. Most know of the Black and Tans, but much of their understanding was coming from a folk history which, is, while not unfounded, was somewhat biased and often in the extreme. Rather than give our opinion on their actions, we just wanted to provide people with the facts of the Crown Forces and provide a better understanding of them, who they were and how they evolved from the beginning of war where the police force was made up of largely native-born Irishmen through to the introduction of temporary constables known as the Black and Tans and later then the Auxiliaries. We wanted to explain their roles, the Black and Tans as a supplementary police force to the dwindling RIC numbers and the Auxiliaries a more militant force um, how, and how their introduction escalated the war and led to some of the worst atrocities of the war. This information was supported with some fantastic artefacts, which we'll, as I said, we'll go through them just a little bit later on. The doll was our next stage um, of the exhibition, and that obviously looks at doll Aaron, um, the revolutionary government. Again, we found that people knew what the doll was and who made up their numbers. But there seemed to be kind of a lack of understanding of what they actually did during the period, kind of on, I suppose, on a day-to-day -day basis, what was what was their aims. Um, so as well as giving a small bit of history on their formation and kind of who they were made up of, we focused on what they did. So we look at the raising of the funds to support the war um, and the new government through the Dáil Loan Bond Scheme. Conceived by Collins as the Minister for Finance, um, this brought in a huge amount of money in from both America and Ireland. Then we looked at the, the overseas policies in gaining recognition for the new Irish Republic with Eamon de Valera and Harry Boland travelling to America and other international envoys such as uh, West Cork's Donald Hayes who went to Italy and that kind of thing. Um, the, the, the setting up of Dáil Courts as well, I suppose, was um, something very important that we wanted to discuss and how successful this was in undermining the British administrative system in Ireland. Important this, we have a few nice artefacts as well, which included uh, one of the Dáil loan bonds with a $10 bond, letters from the Minister for Finance, Michael Collins, regarding the loaning scheme, and a, a very interesting booklet um, from the first sitting of the Dáil in January of 1919. Our next board, after the political leadership, uh, we wanted to look at the military leadership of the war in the form of the IRA executive known as IRA General Headquarters or GHQ. 
an imposing reproduction of the Leo Whelan painting of the GHQ staff of July 1921 hangs in the centre of the room and these men look down on all who enter. Um, With GHQ we found that there was little known about these men and their roles um, by a lot of our visitors. Academically speaking, IRA GHQ have often been placed in a kind of a more minor role um, in the overall conflict with the local and regional um, leaders in command often taking on more responsibility, directing the, the, the local actions as well. Um, but I suppose what GHQ were responsible for was the restructuring of the IRA into a more professional army, in inverted commas, and consolidated their tactics and goals. They were also responsible for training local units and the distribution of weapons and equipment. So I do believe the role is a little underestimated that they were, they were quite important in the, the overall role of the War of Independence. Uh, more importantly for us and our exhibition specifically was the disproportionate amount of West Cork men who made up the higher ranks of GHQ. You had obviously Michael Collins as the Director of Intelligence um, his aide-de-camp, Joe O'Reilly from Bantry. Garoda Sullivan from Skibbereen was the adjutant general. Uh, Dermot O'Hegarty as director of the organisation. Sean O'Martle as or, an organiser and trainer. So it was important for us to include GHQ in a significant manner to highlight the West Cork input into the national struggle as well as the, the regional one, which West Cork is obviously quite well known for. After that, we look at a, a, a quite an in-depth timeline of the War of Independence. Now, in carrying out our research, one of the things we laid out was a timeline of the major events of the war. Now, when this was printed and laid out in a dated list format, it gives a, a, a really good overview and insight into the development of the war. In the beginning from 1919, the events are quite sparse and of a relatively minor level. Um, and as you move down the list um, and down the dates, it becomes they become more regular and of a more extreme nature as you come to the end of 1920, um, where you have almost daily events with key inv- engagements such as Bloody Sunday, Kill Michael, the burning of Cork, and continually escalating until we come to the truce in mid-1921. It's a fantastic illustration of the slow build-up and escalation of the war, which, once we had it laid out ourselves, we, we thought it was vital that we include this in the actual exhibition because uh, I don't think there's a better way to illustrate the development of the war itself. Now, after that, I suppose we have kind of dealt with the national picture of the War of Independence. And we wanted to give a good insight, obviously because of our location, we wanted to give a good insight into the West Cork story. Being in the heart of West Cork and with West Cork being such an important part of the overall story, it was important to tell our our story here as well. And we kind of used it as a, a little bit of a case study as well of local units which were so important in the overall story of the War of Independence. Um, now our local story here is backed up with some incredible local artefacts. We discussed the importance of West Cork in the overall War of Independence, why West Cork was such an active region and detailed some of the events that happened here. 
we didn't want it to be um, a list of local heroes or a who's who of the war in West Cork. So we kind of focus on how the war developed here, the structure of the IRA itself in the region, and the key events such as Kilmichael Ambush, Cross Barry, and the role of the famous or infamous West Cork Flying Column, and how all of this was important to the national narrative. On a local level also, we didn't want to focus on just the military side of things. We wanted to look at the civilian population as well and use the effects the war had locally on the civilian population, essentially as a case study again of how the war impacted the lives of ordinary people. The, the impacts of martial law, curfews, restrictions of travel, reprisal attacks by Crown forces on the civilian population and their property... Um, of course, it wasn't a one-sided, us-against-them situation with the IRA receiving full support of the civilian population. Many people faced intimidation and social pressures to conform to support the IRA um, or else face dire consequences as well. For example, the act of bobbing or the, the act of cutting a female's hair short as a way to hum humiliate her and warn others off fraternising with the enemy. This practice was carried out by both the IRA and the Crown forces as well. Many of those who did support the Republican movement helped out the cause in many ways by providing safe houses, food, financial support, fundraising. Um, Amon also being an important organisation for the latter. Um, so that is the general layout of the exhibition itself. Now I will just move on a little bit to discuss some of the artefacts we have displayed to support the information on the boards. For me, it's the tangible physical history which is the most important thing in the telling of history. And particularly for younger audiences, um, I find it really kind of brings the history to life and it's something that you grasp, you know. We were very lucky to team up with Cork Public Museum on this to bring some key artefacts from the war back home to West Cork and display them here. Now I know obviously in a podcast here, while you can't see them, I will try and describe them as best as I can. But fear not, um, we will be releasing our commemorative booklet shortly and you will be able to see these artefacts in the booklet. Also for people who overseas who mightn't have access to the, the physical booklet, we will be also releasing a digitised version. So I suppose again with Michael Collins' house, accessibility is key to our museum and we want as many people to enjoy our exhibitions as possible so even if you're unable to visit the physical exhibit at this time you'll be able to enjoy it as much as others and um, so first off i'll start off with our crown forces section here we have a model of an ric officers complete with the standard ric uniform so with this uniform it looks black but if you actually look quite closely under the lights here you see that it's a kind of a, a dark green surge now the the black and tans when they were introduced in march of 1920 and um, they would have worn a mix of this tunic this ric tunic with the army khaki color so they weren't necessarily actually black and tans but actually dark green and tans and they just looked black and tans now the the standard temporary constables of the black and tans would have worn kind of a, a rigid a peaked cap as is with this one here while the auxiliaries they were military officers so they they would have worn the more iconic beret style tam o'shanter as well so that's kind of how you differentiate a lot of the time between the ric constables and the auxiliaries 
Um, now on this model um, we have an original black cavalier um, bandolier so this is kind of going from the shoulder to the hip and um, with pockets along it as well like so this this would have held kind of ammunition and bits and pieces belonging to the officer at the time he also has a belt with an original holster and leather pouch as well so all of these would have been um, black in color to match the uniform and this also has some original RIC buttons which are complete with the crowned harp insignia of the RIC and um, which was part of the uniform Within the RIC then you would have had slightly different uniforms, for example the mounted police would have had additional leather putties, so essentially kind of boots to the knee um, and slightly different um, pants to go along with it as well, um, so we, we also have the putties on display here as well. Now, as part of the general RIC and Dublin Metropolitan equipment, um, you would have had a, a whistle, a silver whistle as well, it would have been a major part of their uniform which we have on display here as well another nice little artifact and um, belonged to the RIC as well as an original pair of steel handcuffs as well and these would have been held in the leather pouch of the RIC officer and along with that you have the, the, the ever trusty policeman's notebook now the the notebook that we have here on display is a very interesting one as it's from the Dublin Castle Cipher Department in G Division but I suppose a little bit more, even more interesting than that with this is that the the holder for the notebook itself is a brown leather holder um, which belonged to the British Army. So obviously the, the officer itself had come from the, the British Army and um, to the cipher department of G Division in Dublin Castle. Along with this, um, we have a variety of weaponry which was used by the RIC. While the DMP were unarmed the RIC themselves were um, a slightly militarized unit they mainly used an Lee Enfield carbine as their main weapon of choice other carbines and shotguns would also have been used but we have the, the Lee Enfield on display here they also would have carried a Webley revolver and um, again we have a Webley revolver here on display and also a Webley British Bulldog um, which was kind of one, one of the main weapons as well now this um, gun was originally designed in 1868 and made specifically with the RIC in mind they generally used a 0.44 or 0.42 um, millimeter bullet which would have been um, given a small like they're, they are a, uh, quite a small gun but would have had a, a sizable kick now this particular model is a little bit of a cheat um, it's a, a Belgian ripoff which were very common at the time as well it's actually a 38 millimeter so it would have been a little bit easier to use it wouldn't have has had quite the kick from it now along well opposite actually um, the RIC uniform we have um, a volunteer of the, the IRA now the, the IRA at the time were a little bit more eclectic in their wares um, being a guerrilla war they dressed as civilians but one of the main things that could be considered part of a uniform was a flat cap not universally but many of the IRA volunteers wore a flat cap we have reports within the Bureau of Military History witness statements which describes how um, volunteers when they were on active duty turned their hats their flat cap backwards to kind of signify that they were on active duty now much of the IRA volunteers equipment was either ex-army or the the items that would have been commandeered from the RIC so you have Lee Enfield's 
would have been one of the main full-sized weapons used. You also would have had a number of Mauser rifles as well, which would have been brought in for the 1916 Rising. Some of these were still knocking around as well. Now, the Lee-Enfield itself um, was kind of one of the rifles that was top of its game at the time. It was a magazine-fed rifle. It took a, a 303 bullet, which was relatively easy to use and ma maintain. The Lee Enfield was originally designed in the late 19th century and over the course of the next 20 years up until World War I it was shortened and improvised um, to the, the pinnacle of the Lee Enfield MK3 SMLE which is exactly what we have on display here now. So we also have um, a long Lee um, rifle on display here which is just a, a slightly longer version later version of that now that that is a, a quite an important weapon i'll just talk about that one in, in a few minutes itself and um, but the, the, the lee enfield at the time it was so good it stayed unchanged relatively unchanged until the 1960s and was still in use by the the irish reserve forces until much more recently now the mauser that we have on display here um it's sometimes known as the the hot rifle it was one of the, the, the rifles that were brought in on the asgard and um, for the irish volunteers in 1914. now this weapon is a little bit more difficult to maintain and a lot more difficult to to use as well and there was supposedly a, a, a serious kick off the, the weapon which many young volunteers were surprised by and we have one account of a young volunteer named tom walsh who was knocked out on his first attempt um, to shoot a Mauser rifle, um, which the, the butt of the rifle moved off his shoulder, hit him on the face and knocked him out. Also with the Mauser rifle as well, considering that it was a guerrilla war, one of the things that was very important for the IRA was to go undetected. Now when shot, the Mauser released a large, because it used black powder, um within within its bullets it actually released um quite a quite a big cloud of smoke which isn't ideal when you're trying to fight a guerrilla war but uh, beggars can't be choosers and that the ira were very limited in the weapons that they, they can use and this lack of fire and ammo and training was a, a serious issue for the volunteers and you can this is kind of illustrated in, in another of our artifacts here which is a a, a webley revolver an MK5, or sorry, an MK6 revolver. Now, this is a kind of a, a longer revolver. It's a five-inch barrel. Um, but on this one, the, the barrel of the actual weapon itself and the, the drum that holds the bullets has actually kind of exploded out. Now, the reason behind this, um, we believe, was either the result of badly made homemade bullets, which was common at the time, or else an, an either an incorrectly sized bullet that was chamber, so it was kind of a, a lack of training issue as well. Um, and when it was shot, it exploded. Now, the owner of this weapon was um, a Captain Tom Seeley. He was from Carlow, and he received a very bad leg injury and a light, lifelong limp as a result of this as well. So you can see uh, the, kind of the lack of training, the lack of um, understanding of the weapons and the, the lack of... Um, ammo and that really did it had a serious effect on the, the ranks of the IRA as well so this was across the board as well now our other 
MK6 Webley we have a, a smaller three inch barley version here as well which is which would have been widely used by members of Michael Collins' squad as well because it was quite easy to conceal. The Webley was a very reliable weapon, it was more reliable than kind of automatic handguns as well and that were used at the time. Its squad would have used uh, quite a the high cal caliber version of this weapon as well and um, which would have ensured that they would have had to shoot less bullets and when they did shoot somebody that it was more likely going to be a fatal shooting than than not. Obviously our volunteer uniform here as well standing with his flat cap a trench coat and civilian uniform as well he has a standard Sam Brown belt and um, would have been a, a standard British Army issue at the time as well so you see in, in the archives a lot of kind of the, the volunteers been utilizing ex-army gear like this as well from World War One. so a lot of the the Sam Brown belts and equipment like that they would have used would have been of the brown leather of the, the British Army as well. Um, now the last another interesting little piece from this collection as well here is um, a Mills bomb which is a, a hand grenade very much like a, a modern pineapple um, style grenade. Um, now this particular model would have been used by the British Army in World War One, and obviously would have made its way across um, with the Army forces in the Irish War of Independence and used by the the auxiliaries in that as well. The, the Irish Volunteers also used these weapons but the, their version of it would have been kind of a, a crude homemade version of it that were made in bomb factories in the countryside. Now one of these was actually located quite near to us and these devices would have been used in um, ambush scenarios so like Kill Michael um, where uh, Mills bombs were thrown into the vehicles and would have um, caused a huge amount of damage. Now one of the problems with the homemade versions that the Irish Volunteers made was that they didn't always work, they were very unreliable and oftentimes wouldn't explode or would explode when they weren't, weren't supposed to explode and causing damage to the IRA themselves as well. So while they did confiscate a few from the, the British forces, a lot of the ones that they actually did use were uh, this poor crude homemade version of them. Now the next section of the exhibition um, is a lot of the stuff that we would have received on loan from Cork Public Museum. Now speaking of kind of ambushes and of Kilmichael we have a number of artifacts um, from Cork Public Museum that belong to Tom Barry the commander of the Cork Tower Brigade Flying Column obviously a very famous flying column and these were responsible for the very high profile ambush at Kilmichael and led men out of the encirclement manoeuvre at Cross Barry and feature strongly in Tom Barry's very famous book Guerrilla Days in Ireland. Now belonging to Tom Barry we have a Smith and Wesson revolver um, and his, his own personal leather holster so this is Tom Barry's personal revolver as well. Now we don't know um, what engagements or if this was used in any, but it was shortly after Tom Barry's death in the 80s, and um, this was donated to Cork Public Museum, also al along with the, the holster for it. The, the, the weapon itself is significantly pitted, and that's so it's obvious that it, it, it was kind of hidden, um, obviously not in the most ideal of environments for, for a long period of time as well, so it's no longer in workable order. Cork Public Museum when they received it they, they had the weapon um, somewhat cleaned up and kind of restored but uh, as you'll see if you see it from pictures and that um, it, it is quite badly pitted and damaged.
So alongside Tom Barry's gun, we have um, his service medals displayed. The first of which is the, actually called the service medal. It's the 1917 to 1921 service medal. Um, and this medal was awarded to participants in the Irish War of Independence. Now, the, it is a bronze coloured medal with a black and amber ribbon on it. The, the ribbon intended to represent the black and tan, so specifically um, pointing that this is the, the War of Independence and sometimes known as the, the Tan War, particularly on, among an older generation. Now, I suppose for this specific reason, because it is the Irish War of Independence medal, this medal is kind of front and centre of a lot of our promotional material for the exhibition. So you see it on a lot of the posters and um, even actually for this podcast, on the, on the graphic for this podcast, the, the service medal is kind of front and centre there. So you see it's a, a bronze medal, the words ERA, um, which is Ireland in the Irish language across the centre of it. And then you have Cúga na Saoirse across the bottom of it. So Cúga na Saoirse is the fight for freedom, Oscarga, which is in Irish. And this is across the bottom of the medal. In the centre then, standing to attention, is an armed volunteer with a trench coat and a flat cap. So the, the traditional kind of, I suppose, civilian um, IRA uniform of the time as well. So he's holding his weapon there, standing to attention at the centre of it, and surrounded by the coats of arms of the four provinces. So you have Munster, Ulster, Leinster and Connacht in the four corners of it as well, kind of rep- representing the whole of Ireland. Now this specific medal has a Korok bar on it. Now this Korok bar or something that it's called a combat bar, um, is means basically that the recipient was involved in active military service. Um, and about 15,000 of these medals were issued, while there is also a secondary medal without the bar. And this was awarded to those who participated in the war in some way, but were, were not involved in combat, such as members of Cumann or Fianna Heron. And about 50,000 of these medals were issued as well. Um, but I suppose these days the, the Korok badge uh, medals are quite rare because, as I said, not too many of them, only 15,000 of them were actually issued. Alongside the, the, the his service medal, we have another medal. They were, they were both kind of together on the one clip and we didn't want to remove them for the purpose of the exhibition. So it, it, it's not really relevant to the exhibition itself, but it's it, I suppose it's relevant to Tom Barry himself and that's his emergency medal. Now the emergency medal is a gold medal with a red ribbon uh, and this was um, given to people for their duties during the emergency as it's called in Ireland or World War Two elsewhere. Now Tom Barry himself was actually not in any official capacity um, involved in the, the World War Two with the Irish Army but still for his services given he he, he received a medal for it. Um, now along with that we have his personal diary. Now while this isn't of any kind of military significance and it doesn't kind of talk about anything uh, from a military point of view in it, it is actually a collection of um, quotes and some poetry, some recited poetry and some um, some of his own poetry as well, interestingly. Now, one of the, the other things that we have on display here, um, as well as a, a first edition of Tom Barry's book, Guerrilla Days in Ireland, the signed copy of it, we also have his typewriter, which Guerrilla Days in Ireland was supposedly typed on. Now, interestingly, Tom Barry himself didn't actually type it up. He dictated why his wife, um, Leslie Price, or Leslie DeBarra, as she became known after getting married to Tom, she, it was her that actually typed it. Now, interestingly, actually, 
we have a number of Leslie DeBarra's medals as well. Leslie DeBarra was one of the directors of Coming Amon in in the region. Um, and we have her War of Independence medal as well, as she also went on to become um, one of the, the national faces of the Irish Red Cross. And we have a number of her Red Cross medals as well. Um, she was obviously a hugely important character on the, both nationally for Cumberland, but also in the region as well, even though she was um, from Dublin when she married um, Tom and yeah, moved down here. She was an important figure for Cumberland in the region as well. Now, um, I suppose the, the, one of the, the standout pieces when you come into the exhibition, something that kind of stands out as well, is the Long Lee uh, Enfield rifle, which I discussed earlier on. Now, the Long Lee is an earlier version of the Lee Enfield rifle. It comes from the, the late 19th century, so you're talking this model in particular is from 1896. So it is a slightly older model, but nonetheless effective. And this, this model was owned by Tom Hales. Tom Hales served as the commanding officer of the Cork 3rd Brigade or the West Cork Brigade during the War of Independence and despite his high rank um, he saw active service and oversaw a number of actions in the region. In July of 1920 he was arrested by Crown Forces along with uh, another volunteer Pat Hart and while interrogated both men were tortured. Now Tom's experiences during the period and his subsequent uh, oppositional view of the Anglo-Irish Treaty and his disagreement with his brother Sean served as source material for the award-winning film The Wind That Shakes the Barley. Tom Hales uh, lived on and uh, passed away of natural causes in 1966. Now the Long Lee or the magazine Lee Enfield as it's sometimes called the Long Lee um, was a bolt action magazine fed rifle um, produced first produced in 1895 like the, the other Lee Enfield it takes a 303 ammunition and is manually loaded from the top um, into the, the magazine this particular rifle was very innovative for its time and it was kind of ahead of its time really it gained a, a reputation for being very reliable and easy to use and as such became kind of the, the standard weapon for the British Army and British Infantry for the, uh, from the, the late 19th century all the way through to the middle of the 20th century. As a result of this I suppose it was a very common weapon across Ireland as well and was utilised by both sides during the period as well. So that brings me to the end of the exhibition really. Um, I hope you enjoyed this short talk and I hope it gave... What is really a brilliant exhibition, Justice. Without visual aids, it's a bit difficult to, to give it the justice it deserves. Um, but I hope I gave you a better understanding of our process in creating the exhibition, why we created it as it is, and I suppose some of the content and some of the, the, the artefacts that we have on display. And hopefully it has left you wanting more and wanting to, to visit and see the actual exhibition itself. Um, I suppose the exhibition itself was a, a two-year process um, and a labour a labour of love, but it wouldn't have been possible without the help of many people. So I briefly thank um, Dr. Alan McCarthy and Kevin O'Regan um, for their help in putting this exhibition together. Um, I'd also like to thank Cork Public Museum and Dan Breen for their help, um, the National Museum in, um, of Ireland um, Collins Barracks um, for um, giving us permission to use images and that kind of thing, and also the, the National Library of Ireland, the Bureau of Military History at Cahill Brewer Barracks, the Imperial War Museum of London, Mairead Hales and the Hales family, Brendan Kerrigan, Michael Ward, um, Donna O'Loughlin and the Collins family.
family all who helped out um with um artifacts um uh, images uh, information and so much more thank you all for helping make this possible um, i hope you our listeners um enjoy this podcast and i hope you may find the time to come back and enjoy the exhibition before it ends i look forward to returning to my more minor role of host on the next episode of the michael collins house podcast coming very soon thank you for listening goodbye